You know, I still remember the old poster, and maybe you do too. All that I really need to know, I learned in kindergarten. Remember that old cheesy poster? And I, and I thought that's all it was. It's true. Just a, a, a <laughs> it is true, okay, we've, we've heard it here. <laughs> but I thought it was just a poster, just a, a cheesy motivational slogan. Actually, it's a book. It's a full-length book, and actually what it is, it's a self-help sort of uh, a philosophy book. It was written in the 1980s by a guy who experienced this crisis in his life, and, and the, the point of the book, the goal of the, of the book is to help you navigate through life with all of its problems and complexities. That's the book. And because life is hard, life is a challenge, and, and the author said this about all of his education. He said, I realized that I already knew most of what is necessary to live a meaningful life, that it isn't all that complicated. I know it. And I have known it for a really, really long time. My credo, he says, and here's where the famous line is, all I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Okay, well... What exactly did he learn? What were the deepest lessons of life he learned in kindergarten? And this is what he said. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Don't take what isn't yours. Say sorry when you hurt someone. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. That's a good one. Warm cookies and milk are good for you. Take a nap every afternoon. Watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. And there it is, the deepest lessons of life. There they are. And we get it. It's cute and cheesy and kind of dumb, and we get it. And, and, and I think the point is, I think the point is kindergarten is a surprising place to learn the deepest lessons of life, right? And my point in telling you is this. Isaiah chapter 59 is a little bit like that poster. You see, if, if kindergarten is a surprising place to learn the deepest lessons of life, Isaiah chapter 59 is a surprising place to learn the deepest lessons of eternity. You see, everything I need to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I learned by reading Isaiah chapter 59. The sin of man, the grace of God, the call to repent, the necessity of faith, a sovereign redeemer, a kingdom that is coming, the glory of God as the treasure of our lives. It's all there in a chapter written 700 years before Jesus Christ ever even appeared. And here's the thing about Isaiah 59. Is that it was written at a time when things were almost at their very worst in Judah. The most evil king in Judah's history, Manna is, Manna, Manasseh is reigning on the throne. The people are entrenched in sin and love with their idols. The armies of Babylon are coming in the future and they will torch the land. They will topple Jerusalem. They will take the people captive as slaves. I mean, things in Judah are at an all-time low, and they showed no signs of stopping their destruction. And here's the thing, not that Isaiah was ever firing blanks anyway, but it is live ammo from here on out in chapters 56 through 66, the final section of Isaiah's book. In these chapters, the wrath is hotter, the rebukes are sharper, the images are scarier. And yet at the same time, beloved, the grace is sweeter, the comforts are, are deeper, and the visions of the kingdom in these chapters are more compelling than anywhere else in the Bible. You see, Isaiah ends his prophetic masterpiece not with a whisper, but a scream in the night. And these final chapters are designed to do two things. Two things. Number one, listen carefully to sustain the faith of struggling saints on the one hand, and number two, to strike fear into the hearts of unrepentant sinners on the other. 
to force every person who reads these chapters, if they have not done so already, to choose. To choose between the kingdom of God and the wrath of God. Between the sword of God and the salvation of God. Joy without measure, misery without end, which is why the title of the sermon is The Sorrows of Sin and the Salvation of God. Because guess what? At the end of the chapter, what do we see? What do we see? But Yahweh arrived as a warrior king clad in armor, waging war upon the earth and saving his people through the hand of a redeemer. That's how it's all going down in the end, beloved. History, I mean. That's how it's all going down. God will crush the wicked. He will humble the proud. He will save his people. He will build a kingdom and he will win it all in the end. And what does that do but make a people of courage and joy? Does it not? To face the terrors of a fallen world. To laugh the laugh of faith even in the face of fear. To live always with the glow of eternity on our face. That is what eschatology is for. And so woe to the church. Woe to the church. Who does not know what God has planned for the end of the age. And that's the thing about chapter 59. Is that it isn't just high level eschatology. It is also the gospel. Not simple or basic necessarily critical and crucial and essential and indispensable gospel truths that save a guilty soul from destruction. Because everything I need to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I learn from reading Isaiah chapter 59. And so let me just ask you this morning, in all seriousness, do you know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? And even more than that, have you believed it for the salvation of your soul? Do you know about the great corruption of sin that makes you guilty before God? Do you know about the great confession of sin and the need to repent? Do you know about the great Christ a redeemer who came and was slain for the sins of men. Do you know about the great coming? The arrival of a king to reign on the earth. And do you know about the great conversion when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? That is the gospel. And some of you believe it and are saved. And some of you need to believe it that you may be saved. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see five soul-saving gospel truths. Five soul-saving gospel truths from Isaiah 59 that both save the lost and stir the soul to worship. Five soul-saving gospel truths that both save the lost and stir the soul to worship. And Isaiah's sermon, oracle, message type thing comes in three parts. Part one is this. The fearful separation between Yahweh and his people. The fearful separation between Yahweh and his people. Because you remember, last week, chapter 58, people of Judah were not happy, were they? They felt shunned by God, ignored by God. They, they were offended by God. And the reason why is because he didn't seem to notice all the things that they were doing as a people to please him. You remember in chapter 58, there was some kind of city-wide revival, awakening type thing where they were seeking God's blessing upon them as a nation. Do you remember? They, they were zealous and fervent and eager and passionate. They were, they were praying, they were even fasting, they were, they were seeking God day by day, and yet the problem is, the problem is, you remember, all of it was a charade. It was nothing more than hollow religiosity. 
They were using God as a way, as a means to get what they wanted more than God. And, and we know their zeal wasn't real because chapter 57 reveals their rampant idolatry. They were steeped in sorcery. How could you do both? They, they were worshiping idols. They were even offering their children as, as offerings to Molech. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry if God's not impressed with your little awakening. And yet they still weren't convinced. They were not persuaded that they were as bad as Yahweh said they were, and so they needed a little convincing. And so that's why chapter 59 exists, starting in verse 1. Behold, surprise. The hand of Yahweh is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. And you can tell, can't you? Isaiah is responding to an accusation. You see, the people seem to think that Yahweh's hand was too short to save. That his ear was too dull to hear, meaning he didn't have the power to keep his promises. And, and you think about this here. Isaiah has been preaching the power of God to save them as a nation for decades, right? For decades. I mean, Isaiah is an old man now. In the twilight of his career, he has been preaching for 25 years the coming salvation and kingdom of God. And yet... Nothing's any different. They're still the same. They're still, the kingdom is still shattered. They're still a disaster. They're still in danger. Babylon is still coming to take them into captivity in the future. From a human perspective, all of Isaiah's preaching about the kingdom and salvation was hogwash. Empty words, wishful thinking, and, and get a load of this. Back in chapter 50, verse 2, Yahweh said, is my hand too short to redeem? And is there not power in me to deliver? To which the people reply, yes, actually. Your hand is too short to redeem. You don't seem to have the power to deliver your people. Otherwise, you would have done so by now. To which Isaiah says, no, hold on. You wait just a darn minute. Because there might be reasons other than him having short arms why he hasn't saved you. There might be an alternative explanation other than God's weakness why the mess of your lives and the danger you're in hasn't changed. Verse 2 gives the explanation. It's not that Yahweh's hand is too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. Here it is. But your iniquities have caused a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. And that's the reason. The reason why God didn't save them and why he didn't hear them is not because he was too weak, but because of their own iniquity and sin. That caused the breach. That caused the separation. And you see, the issue is, listen very carefully, the issue is, is that they had fundamentally rejected God, unrepentant, living in rebellion. And when the walls came crashing down, and all the pain God promised would come, did come. They demanded that God deliver them from the wreckage, and they were angry when he didn't. You see, they, they, they weren't repentant for their sin. They just didn't like the consequences of their sin. And you hear the difference between those two things. Just because you don't like the pain your sin causes doesn't mean that you don't like your sin. Or that you're repentant. Or that you love God. And that was Israel. They were unbelievers in love with sin, using God like medication to take away the pain. And yet, listen carefully, God doesn't answer the prayers of unrepentant people who hate him. 
The point of verse 2 is that they were objects of judgment and under his wrath. And the point of the chapter was to crush them to the point of repentance and faith. Verses 3 and 4 prove the point. Look how, look how extensive and pervasive was their sin. Why does God not hear you? Why does he hide his face from you? Because your hands are defiled with blood. And your fingers with iniquity. Your lips speak falsehood. Your tongue mutters deceit. There is no one who calls in righteousness. There is no one who judges in faithfulness. They trust in confusion. They speak what is worthless. They conceive mischief and they give birth to iniquity. See it there in verse 3? Hands, fingers, lips, and tongue. Every part of the body was defiled by sin. Their hands were, were defiled with blood, meaning murder and bloodshed. I mean, these were a brutal, hateful people and not the holy, wise, and loving people that Yahweh called them to be. And then Isaiah grabs their hands. Show me your fingers. Show me your hands. Sure enough, there's sin there too. Even under their fingernails, as it were, he says their, their fingers are defiled with iniquity, meaning sin was in the details of their lives. They were ensnared by sin. They were entangled in sin. It dominated their lives. Verse 3, they were liars. Lips of falsehood. Tongue of deception. Which is just so sad, isn't it? I mean, if Israel was to be anything, if they were to be anything as a nation on the planet, they were to be the one people on the planet who spoke the truth, right? Who believed the truth, who spoke the truth, declared the truth in every area of life. I mean, Proverbs is pretty clear about this. Every word was to reflect and communicate reality. As people of the God of truth, they were to speak the truth. And now they were exactly like the nations. Dishonest, devious, duplicitous, and deceptive. And verse 4 is clear. It wasn't just a, a few bad apples. Notice, notice, there is no one who calls in righteousness. No one judges faithfully. No one stood up for righteousness. No, no one took a stand for justice, which means, listen carefully, no one held the word of God in high esteem. Nobody preached the truth. Instead, Isaiah says, they trust in confusion, probably idols. They speak what is worthless. They, they conceive mischief. They give birth to iniquity, which is just a gruesome image, isn't it? They just did what they did, and they did not give a rip what the infinite, sovereign God of incinerating holy perfection thought about any of it. They had become a nation without a conscience. And you wonder why, Israel. You wonder why God ignores your prayers. Why he hides his face. Why he doesn't intervene. It's not because his arms are short. It's because you can't have your sin and salvation at the same time. You can't have God's blessing on your life and live in rebellion at the same time. One of those things must go. Between them, you must choose. And in 100% seriousness, my question is, have you made that choice? Have you made that choice? I mean, really think it through. Don't, don't just assume. With all of your struggles and imperfections notwithstanding, do you see a life of joyful submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you battle with sin and sometimes lose. I'm asking when no one is around and no one is watching, is God himself the treasure and the prize? Verse 5. 
Do you see in your life habits and patterns of sin that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify? Or have you renounced with severe and bitter hatred? All other lusts and pretenders and competitors to Jesus Christ. What I'm asking is, have you despaired in your worthless works to save you? And have you cast yourself upon Jesus Christ alone? Because here's the thing. Isaiah does not want them to forget. And he does not want us to forget what, rather, who he described six chapters before this in chapter 53. Do you remember? Can they have the... Behold, my servant. Remember him? Pierced for transgressions. Crushed for iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but Yahweh caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so my question is, have you trusted in the servant who was crushed? And I don't know what you're afraid of. But you ask people what they're afraid of, and eventually on the list is going to come spiders and snakes, right? People have always been afraid of spiders and snakes, and yet Isaiah's got bad news for the people of Judah. Namely, they were the spiders and the snakes. Look at verses 5 and 6. They hatch the eggs of a viper. And they spin the webs of a spider. The one who eats from their eggs will die. And the one who tramples them, a snake will break forth. Their webs will not be for clothing, and they will not cover themselves with their works. Their works are the works of iniquity, and the deed of violence is in their hands. Do you see? They were the vipers and the spiders. Their eggs were poison. You eat them, you die. Their webs were deadly. They catch you and they suck your blood. What's the point? The point is these were a dangerous people. They were a vicious, blood-sucking nation. Think about it. They should have been. They were supposed to be the most loving nation on the face of the planet. Right? I mean, after all, the call to love your neighbor as yourself was first found in the book of Leviticus. But the point of the illustration is this, verse 6. Their works are the works of iniquity. And the deed of violence is in their hands. I mean, you, you get the impression that, that 7th century Judah was not a great place to raise a family. And it wasn't. And we've already seen the anatomy of the depravity, right? Right? Hands, fingers, lips, and tongue covered in sin. Now look at verses 7 and 8. Look at their feet and hear their thoughts. Isaiah says, their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Ruin and destruction are in their tracks. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They pervert their paths and everyone who walks in it does not know peace. Do you see that? They ran to evil, which means they loved their sin. They loved their sin. They were exhilarated by sin. They were quick to vengeance, to hurt innocent people. Their thoughts, notice, were the thoughts of iniquity. That Hebrew word literally means what is twisted, what is perverted. Their paths were perverse. Their ways were wicked. They they did not know the way of peace. I mean, Isaiah is just pounding on these people to get them to see that they need a savior. And, And maybe you're thinking, okay, how does any of this apply to me? Right? I mean, these are, these are pretty nasty people. These are unbelievers, and I agree. And you, you would also agree, right, that any passage on sin is a really, really good opportunity 
to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. Paul told the Corinthians to do that very thing, 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And so let me just ask you, verse 3. What is in your hands? And what do you think about? Verse 4. What do you trust in? What kind of plans do you conceive? Verse 7, what do you run to and what do you think about? What are the paths of your life like? And verse 8, do you know the way of peace? The peace that alone can come from a clean conscience and being reconciled to the living God? I mean, you can tell what I'm asking you, are you not? Does my life tell the story of sovereign grace? Does my life bear the marks of a true believer? At the end of the day, what I'm asking is, are you banking everything? Your eternity and your acceptance with God, are you banking everything on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Because if not, there is a separation between you and your God. Part two. Part two, the sorrowful confession of an apostate people. The sorrowful confession of an apostate people. Because more and more, the longer I have been a pastor, the more I am learning to tell the difference between those who are ready to change and those who aren't. Those who want to be shepherded and those who don't. Also, more and more, I am beginning to tell the difference between learning to, to hear and notice what true repentance looks like and sounds like. Do you understand there are certain cues and, and clues that show if a person is truly broken over sin before God or if they're just more sorry that they got caught? Because there's a difference. And my point is verses 9 through 15 is what true repentance looks like and sounds like. And, and like if someone is truly broken over sin, here's what you see. And here's the thing about this, listen carefully, is that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they were not repentant. I mean, clearly, right? They are not yet broken over sin. These words that you're about to see are not their words yet, but they will be one day. You see, they are not repentant yet, but they will be. And when they are, this is what they'll say. Beginning in verses 9 through 11. Look at the text. Therefore, justice is far away from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We wait for light and behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope like blind men on the wall, and like one who has no eyes, we grope. We stumble as in the midday, as in the twilight. We are among the vigorous like dead men. We are, we all, all of us growl like bears. We groan like doves. We wait for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far away from us. You understand, that's not a complaint. That is a lament. Those are the words, not, not just of responsibility, but of repentance. Justice is far away, verse 9, which means their lives are filled with sin. Righteousness, they say, does not overtake us, meaning no matter how hard we try or what we do, we can never become righteous. Righteousness, as it were, can't keep up with how wicked we are. 
Verse 10, we are in darkness, they say. We are stuck in sin, trapped in sin, in a dungeon of spiritual gloom. Look at the confession. We are blind. We cannot see. We have no eyes. We don't have salvation. End of verse 10, we're like dead men. We are blind and dead and damned and helpless. In verse 11, we are miserable. We growl like bears. We groan like doves. We wait for justice and there is none for salvation. It is far away from us. I mean, I hope you can tell what they're saying. They know it is all their fault. At least they will one day. How do we know? Verse 12. Verse 12. For our transgressions are abundant before you. And our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and our iniquities we know them. We know we brought this on ourselves. And you notice there's, there's not one excuse or qualification at all. No attempt to minimize sin at all. Notice how thorough their repentance is. Notice very carefully, our transgressions, our sins, our iniquities. They use every word for sin to say, we are guilty of that. They don't use replacement words for sins to make themselves feel better. These are not accidents. These are not mistakes. These are not mess ups or just my personality. These are sins before the God of the universe. And what they needed was not a do over, but forgiveness. Atonement, cleansing and renewal from the inside out, which is the entire point of the chapter. John Bunyan defined sin like this. Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. He's exactly right. And when we see sin that way, then we will repent. And here's the thing about repentance that you have to understand. True repentance doesn't care who knows. It doesn't care what anybody else thinks. God knows God knows, and that's enough. Look what they say. Our transgressions are before you. Before you, they say. Like David in Psalm 51, against you, against you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your eyes. That's the difference, Paul says. That's the difference, 2 Corinthians 7, between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sad for sin because someone might know about it and think less of you. Godly sorrow is crushed for sin and wants to change because God himself is the treasure and the prize. Do you see? Verse 13 is a brutally honest bleeding of the heart. Look at the text. We have rebelled. You should supply a we there. We have rebelled. We have defied Yahweh. We have been disloyal to our God. We speak oppression. We conceive apostasy. We mutter words of deception from the heart. I mean, you see it, right? The signs of true repentance. It's all there. They don't shift the blame. They call sin what it is, rebellion. They admit their apostasy. No one made them lose their faith. They made a choice to turn from Yahweh. They acknowledge their sin comes from the heart. For it, they are guilty. They are guilty. I mean, you, you see what Isaiah is trying to do, don't you? He is giving them the script. 
They are not yet repentant, but they will repent. And this is how to do it. And, and, and let's, let's really diagnose the issue here, shall we? Let's do some biblical counseling. The reason why they were not crushed over sin is because they were not captivated by God. That's why. You see, when we fail to see the blazing glory of God in the beauty of his holiness, we fail to see how repulsive and monstrous sin against him really is. You see, when God is small, sin is small. And when sin is small, wow, it just doesn't take a whole lot to sort it all out, does it? If sin is a small problem, salvation only means a cooperative effort where God chips, you, chips in to help you out a little bit. But you see, when God is high and magnificent and sin is deep and vile, only then can we see that salvation is a true rescue of the helpless. And my question is, do you see sin and God like that? That sin is vile because God is beautiful. That sin is monstrous because God is marvelous. What I'm asking is, do you see that true repentance and sorrow for sin is not merely the icky feelings you get after you sin, but the true sorrow over sin happens when we see the, the beauty of God in the glory of his holiness. In other words... If you want to see your sin as repugnant, you must see the triune God as magnificent. And where you see that is in the treasure vault of Holy Scripture, right? And yet that's the problem. That was the problem with Judah. The word of God had been abandoned and, and lost in the rubble of, of sin and idolatry. Look at verses 14 and 15. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Why? Notice, for truth stumbles in the street. And what is upright cannot come. Verse 15, the truth is missing. And the one who turns from evil is plunder. I mean, you see it, right? Justice and righteousness has vanished from the land. All of it is gone. Why? Why was it gone? Because there is no place for truth anymore in Judah. Truth meaning scripture. Long ago, the word of God got demoted and shelved. It lost the place of supremacy in their lives. And the problem with that, beloved, the problem with that is that if you lose the word of God, you lose God himself. Why? Because the word of God is the means through which God gives us himself. See, the reason why Judah was in the predicament that they were in and why they needed salvation is because somewhere along the way, the word of God ceased to be supreme and central in their lives and in their affections. And it's so easy, isn't it? It's so, so easy to read these words with a sense of detachment and distance. And yet I think there's some issues here that we need to consider more soberly. And the issue is this, listen carefully. I mean, what, what, what went wrong with them? How did they get here? Here's the answer. The unraveling of a people and a nation and a church begins in the home. And in the home, it begins with the fathers. You see, lurking beneath the train wreck of Judah's society are deeper concerns that led to those conditions. 
namely the failure of individuals and families to love Yahweh and make his word supreme and central in their lives. No, I mean, the chain reaction is, is, is chilling. It's not like this just magically happened, happened in a vacuum. No, no chain of, of events that led to one thing. No, no, it was all connected. The, the failure of fathers in Judah to lead their children and lead their families and teach the, the law of Yahweh led not just to godless children, but to godless adults some of whom became godless leaders to lead a godless people. Therefore, everybody was guilty. Everybody was responsible. Which means, listen carefully, the health of your home and the health of this church is determined by your own personal time in the word of God. I'm not saying reading the Bible magically does anything. But I am saying that it radically changes people's lives. Our lives are transformed through the renewing of our minds with truth. And so you need to understand the most loving service you can render to another human being is to get your own soul saturated with the sacred text of Holy Scripture. So you see Isaiah's goal, don't you? He, in both, he both invites them to repent and gives them to the very words to repent. And you could totally tell the, the point of the text is not to crush them to despair, but to drive them to see their need for a Savior. To be undone. To come unraveled to see the humanly incurable corruption of their souls and the beauty of a redeemer who came to earth and died for souls. And speaking of that redeemer, he not only has come and will come again, and that brings us to part three. Part three. The powerful depiction of Yahweh the warrior. The powerful depiction of Yahweh the warrior. And here, finally, we come to the point of the entire chapter. Everything else in this otherwise grim chapter is designed to get you to this point here in verses 15 through 21. Because you remember the chapter began with the arm of Yahweh is not too short that it cannot save, nor is his ear too dull that it cannot hear. But that doesn't mean that Yahweh won't answer forever. No, no, he has responded. He will respond. And notice how he has responded starting in verse 15, middle of the verse. And Yahweh saw. And it was literally in the Hebrew evil in his eyes, for there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And he was astonished because there was no one to intercede. Thus his arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. Notice, he put on righteousness like armor and like a helmet salvation on his head and he put on the garments of vengeance like a garment and he wrapped himself with a robe of zeal that's how God responded not just to the evil of Israel but to all evil everywhere in history and there, there's a chilling simplicity is there not about the words Vayaer Yahweh and Yahweh saw, he saw this because he always sees. Every deed, every disobedience, every wicked word, every treacherous act, every sin, every iniquity, every murder, every motive, every desire of the wicked, every secret of the soul, everything is seen with absolute sovereign perfection and Yahweh forgets none of it. He keeps a record of wrongs, you know. One writer says, the great hope of all believers in every age is that Yahweh sees. He is neither blind nor oblivious. 
And his seeming silence must never be mistaken for indifference, for he sees and hears the clamors of all the babbles and sodoms of this world, and he has decreed that all their evil in sin will very soon come to an end. He's right. And not only does Yahweh see it, the text says it was evil in his eyes, to say the least. And notice, not only was it displeasing to him, notice, God was shocked. God was horrified. Look at verse 16. Yahweh saw, and there was no one, and he was astonished. The word there literally is horrified. Because there's no one to intervene. You know, God and, God and emotions are kind of a funny thing, aren't they? I mean, we assume that because God is God, omniscient, all-knowing, absolutely sovereign, that God can't react emotionally, that he doesn't have emotions, but he does. He does react to the atrocities of the world. And here it says that he was astonished. There was no one among his people to intervene. There was no Moses or David who would rise up to stop the tide of evil that swept through the land. There was no, there was no Luther or Calvin or Knox or Tyndale to stand up for the honor of Yahweh, defend the truth of their lives. There was no one. There was no one. And so, fine. Fine. No one going to intervene, stand up and intervene for the glory of Yahweh? I guess he's just going to have to intervene and do it himself. And notice when he does, he's coming for war. Verses 16 and 17. Yahweh saw, and it was evil. He was astonished. And his arm brought salvation to him. His righteousness upheld him. Here it is. And he put on righteousness like armor. And the helmet of salvation on his head. And he wrapped himself, put on the garments of vengeance like clothing, and wrapped himself in a robe of zeal. That is real, beloved. That is real. Metaphorical language, of course. God doesn't have arms. This isn't real armor made of righteousness. He doesn't actually have a helmet made of salvation, a uniform made of vengeance, but you see the point. And the point is, listen carefully, Yahweh is ready. He is ready. He is sitting right now, as it were, on a throne, lofty and exalted, sleeves rolled up, Muscles tight and ready to move. Veins popping out on his neck and his arms. Psalm 7 says that God is angry with the wicked every single day. And there he sits. Clothed in armor. Not, made, not made of clunky metal or heavy steel, but, but righteousness, salvation, vengeance, and zeal. The first two are hope for believers. The last two are doom for unbelievers. And notice, did you notice? Where's his weapon? Where's his weapon? He has no weapon. His arm is enough. His arm is the weapon. And you might remember this, and this is really important. The arm of Yahweh has been a theme repeatedly throughout Isaiah's prophecy. Again and again is the arm of Yahweh, the arm that will bring salvation, the arm that will bring deliverance, the arm that will crush the wicked. And yet, listen very carefully. In chapter 53, we discover that the arm of Yahweh with which he will bring salvation and deliverance is none other than the Messiah himself. He is Yahweh's arm. He is God's agent to conquer evil and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. No wonder Revelation 19 portrays Jesus Christ as a king 
clothed with a robe splattered with blood, sword in his mouth, striking down the nations. He is the arm of Yahweh. This is real, beloved. This is real. And people always ask, don't they? In the face of some great evil or atrocity, people indict God, they blame God, they accuse God, right? And you've had these conversations. Where is God? Huh? Where is he? Does he not care about this? When is God going to answer for this? When is God going to come and deal with the atrocities that take place on the planet? And my first thought and response is, are you sure you want that? Are you absolutely sure that you want that? Because you had better make sure that you are covered by the blood of the lamb before that does. But the second thought and response is, and this is the very point of verse 17, where is God? I'll tell you where he is and what he's doing. He is reigning on a throne. Clothed in armor, ready for battle, ready for vengeance, ready for war. And yet according to his sovereign mercy and his infinitely wise predetermined plan, he waits and he waits and he waits for the exact precise moment in time that he will intervene through his son. And when he does, it will be justice that shakes the cosmos. And verse 18 captures that moment. This is the future. This is real. According to their deeds, he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. He will repay recompense to the coastlands. And what's the result? Verse 19. They will fear from the west the name of Yahweh and from the rising of the sun his glory for he will come like a rushing river driven by the wind of Yahweh. The scene, the language is terrifying. One day, everybody will know the name of Yahweh and they will tremble at his glory. They will shudder at the terror of his wrath. Why? For he will come like a rushing river driven by the hand of Yahweh. I mean, a, a rushing river would be bad enough. But this is white water rapids driven by the hurricane winds of the anger of God. And the point is, this, the judgment to come, beloved, and this is real. The judgment to come in the future is so devastating, so catastrophic that no one will be safe and no one will be spared except except those who trusted in a redeemer and who agreed to the terms of the covenant look at verse 20 then a redeemer, a redeemer will come to Zion. To those who turn from wickedness in Judah, declares Yahweh. Who is that? Who is the redeemer to save his people who trust in him? Who is it? You know who it is. You know exactly who it is. And guess what? So did the apostle Paul. He quoted this text in Romans chapter 11. It's in your notes. For I do not wish you to be unaware, brothers, of this mystery that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and then all Israel will be saved. And here it is. As it is written, the Redeemer will come from Zion, banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I forgive their sins. The Redeemer to come is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen carefully. In the night that he was betrayed, 
In a low-lit room around the table, he lifted up a goblet of wine, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant, you understand, that's salvation, right? That is salvation. The treasure of salvation bought with the blood of the Son, and that is exactly how the chapter ends. Verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant that I will make with them. My spirit will be upon you and my words which I put in your mouth and they will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your offspring or from the mouths of the offspring of your offspring, says Yahweh from now and until eternity. Tell me, tell me, what is that? What is that? but absolute transformation, isn't it? Renovation of people's lives. The making of a new humanity, which he is doing right now in the church, and he will do it for Israel in the future. This is the gospel, beloved. The gospel of life, the gospel of a redeemer, the gospel of the kingdom. And very quickly, that brings us to five Soul-saving gospel truths. Five soul-saving gospel truths, and they're all in your notes if you've got them. Number one. Number one. There is a great corruption. There is a great corruption. The, the Bible, this is fundamental to the Bible, that there is something wrong with the souls of men. Verses one through eight, we're clear about this. We're all born spiritually dead. Slaves to sin, blinded by the devil, under the wrath of God. Right? Isaiah 58, uh, Psalm 58.3 says that we are all wick born wicked and go astray from the womb. Isaiah 53.6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way instead of God's way. And yet there is a way. There is a way to be forgiven. To be transformed, gospel truth number two, there is a great confession. There is a great confession, which we saw in verses 9 through 15. You understand, to get saved, you need to confess. You need to admit. Level with the Lord of the universe that you are wrong. Utterly rebellious. And that he has, he had every right to send us to the river of his wrath and plunge us into the lake of fire. And yet you must also confess with absolute astonishment and joy that he has made a way where sinners don't have to bear that wrath. Conf uh, gospel truth number three, there is a great Christ. There is a great Christ. You know this, don't you? There is a redeemer and a savior, fully God and fully man, who came to earth to die for sinners. He took the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. He willingly crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside. He lives and he is coming again to reign, which is gospel truth number four. There is a great coming. There is a great coming for victory or for vengeance. To crush the wicked and save his people. There is a kingdom coming to earth and with the splendor of a thousand beautiful sons, Jesus Christ will rule the earth from a throne in Jerusalem, which is gospel truth number five. There is a great conversion. There is a great conversion, not just of people, nations, but of all of creation itself. The Jews will be restored. I'm almost done. The Jews will be restored. The nations redeemed. The curse of sin reversed. The devil removed. Paradise regained. The great high king ruling and reigning. And all of creation returned to reflect the glory of the one who made it. And we will, as they say, live happily ever after. 
And so my question is, and with this I close, have you believed this gospel? Have you believed this gospel? Have you believed it for the salvation of your soul? Because if you haven't, the mercy of God has spared your life for this very moment to repent of sin and yield to the king where for endless ages upon ages you can savor the riches of eternal life. Let's pray. We thrill and rejoice, O Christ, that the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. From the Jew and from the Greek, for in the gospel, your righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we are grateful, O Lord, that you have brought the gospel to us. Who are we? Who are we that, that we could be saved? Who are we that we would believe this? Who are we that you would choose us? Who are we that you would awaken us? Who are we that you would redeem us? Who are we that you would transfer us to the kingdom of light? Who are we that we will inhabit a kingdom and beyond in the new heavens and the new earth? We're just people who deserve your wrath and yet, and yet, we marvel at your grace. Oh, great God, embolden us, empower us, sustain us, strengthen us. And anyone in this room, I plead with you, O oh Lord, that you would intervene right now. If they do not know you, that you would open blind eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.